Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Hello, and welcome to Be Real Guys. It is your movie reviewing and re-reviewing podcast, and uh, I'm Chance Solemn Pfeiffer. I'm Noah Ballard. And welcome to, uh, what, the the unholiest alliance since Whitey Bulger and uh, the Boston office of the FBI. Yeah, I mean, just as uh, the characters in this film just go for broke for seemingly no reason, Chance and I... (laughs) Every 10 days or so go for broke uh, for seemingly no reason. Uh, and today we've outdone ourselves. Not only uh, are we uh, sponsored by something strange today, we're also uh, featuring some credibility today. Indeed we are. This episode features our first ever uh, guest, certainly our first ever, let's call him an expert, an expert witness, um, so because Black Mass, the Whitey Bulger biopic starring Johnny Depp, came out, uh, I don't yeah, know. Parenthetically, the only good movie, or potentially good movie, that has seen the light of day in about two months. Yeah, exactly. It effectively kicked off fall movie season um, after what had been a pretty serious drought. Um, anyway, because of that, we are reviewing three Johnny Depp Gangster movies. Absolutely. In a, a podcast I'm going to call The Crimes of Johnny Depp. <laughs> uh, Black yeah. Mass. Oh, and, and Retur- oh yeah, we saw Black Mass, um, Donnie Brasco, as aforementioned, and um, yeah, the, the Public Enemy. Public Enemies. That's what I said. <laughs> that Michael Mann directed one. So, yeah. yeah. And I was searching around. Thinking about uh, who could be our expert Johnny Depp witness, looking at what had been written about him uh, in recent or semi-recent years. And by far the most interesting piece of work was was a book called Johnny Depp Starts Here by Murray Pomerantz, who, as it turns out, is a professor of sociology, but also teaches some film classes at Ryerson University in Toronto, and he has written a tremendous d- number of um, books and essays about film and actors, like dozens and dozens of things. A uh, depth scholar, if you will. Yeah. Or partially, I guess he said he was kind of rusty um, on depth, but he certainly not- wasn't. I've heard the interview, <laughs> which we conducted a few days ago, or at least chance did. And then he yeah. sent me the rough cut and my God, that man takes not only you, but Johnny Depp and really movies in general to task. <laughs> It was great, uh, and we thank Murray uh, very kindly for for being our guest on this podcast. And uh, a few different times in a few different segments, uh, we'll throw to my conversation with him for a careful observer and expert's insight on some of Depp's choices and these movies about which he has been published. So, which movie should we start with tonight, Chance? I think we should start with Black Mass. Black Mass. Still fresh in my mind. This movie was directed 
by Scott Cooper, and it stars Johnny Depp as the Boston sort of uh, small-time hustler, racketeer turned full-blown crime kingpin in Boston, Whitey right. Bulger, who was a real person. Uh, the movie starts in the mid-70s and goes through the mid-90s when Bulger fled Boston. And actually, weird side note, um, this is probably how most people actually know who this is. Dude was like completely off the map for like 20 years, and they found him like a little old man living in California. And uh, just recently, I think he went on trial within the last couple of years. Um, yeah. But the, the sort of forward narrative push of this movie is the alliance struck between Bolger and a fellow Southie neighborhood kid, John Conley, who uh, is played by Joel Edgerton, who's an FBI agent, um, under the pretense of bringing down the mob on the north side of Boston, uh, he sort of signs Bolger up as an informant for the FBI, which essentially kind of makes him untouchable by the criminal justice system and allows him to expand his kind of violent operations over the course of a couple decades. Right. So, yeah. And that's, that's, that's more or less the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, now, before we get into it, I just want to uh, see how, you know, how honest you're going to be, Chance, in admitting the fact that you have a pretty big soft spot for both movies set in Boston, yep. movies about organized crime, yep. and Joel Edgerton. <laughs> yeah, I love Joel Edgerton, but we've never okay. talked about that, have we? I just want to, you know, make people aware that Chance was sort of coming into this one, just reuniting with his three favorite things. <laughs> we have never once had a conversation about Joel Edgerton. How do you know about my feelings about him? No, we definitely have. You went nuts for that. What was that boxing movie he was in? Oh, the MMA one, Warrior? Yeah, you yeah, went movie, nuts that for that good. one. You were talking about Edgerton for like weeks. That's not true, but okay. How else would I know about it? I don't know. That's interesting. I think those are fair declarations to make. Sure. Okay, good. Um, and so, yeah, why don't we, for the first time, then throw to my conversation with Murray Pomerantz, and he is gonna kind of synopsize um a few parts of black mass and uh kind of kick it around kick the tires on it talk about uh what he thinks of it and thinks of depth's performance it's not what you do it's when and where you do it if nobody sees it it didn't happen two different things that are weird about black mass uh generally uh, and you should know in advance that I don't usually care very much about um thoughts and what's going on but the guy who made black mass Scott Cooper is a big fan of gangster movies but mostly fairly contemporary gangster movies so instead of the 30s we're talking about Really, movies like Goodfellas, The Mean Streets, maybe to some degree Casino. Goodfellas has played heavily on this guy's mind. Mm-hmm. And the performances in Goodfellas and the structure of Goodfellas. So there's, he's, taken a, he's taken a lot of influence from Goodfellas, but he's also kind of turned on by um, Boston chic. We get ringing. You see, Goodfellas is New York, but we get a lot of ringing of uh goodwill hunting and gone baby gone and the departed sure and um mystic river yeah. indeed there are certain you know moments location moments in this film where you'd swear you're in one of those other films and the events that are happening 
are seemed to be from the other films. And indeed, he borrows the casts, or seems to borrow the style of acting or the type of uh, of young actor he's using for subsidiary roles. So you keep popping in and out of these very stylized, um, let's call it new gangster drama. The film is more a quotation than an actual work of art in that respect. So it's what I would call a kind of um, genre film. Second, It's a second-degree film for sure. It's not an important film. The story is not important. The events are not important. The fact that it's based on live action is not important. And so the Depp performance stands out in this film as being on another level because the Depp performance is amazing. But it's it's on the key. The, what I'm trying to get at is that it's on another level from the film. Sure. So um, that's kind of interesting because you have to kind of look at the film on one side and then Johnny on another, and you have to talk about Johnny almost independently of the film. And we can do that if you want to. Sure. But what's interesting to me about this is that it's not the only case where he has taken on a role like that, where he's kind of gone in with some people into a project where the film is kind of either horrible. <laughs> or flimsy well flimsy horrible pointless stupid there, yeah. there have been films like that um, and by the way I would not include the pirates films in that category I know that may sound revolutionary but that's not what I mean I just mean he's jumped into a project where there's no real value in the project but he does something really 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 interesting in it so you get this same exact division of attention between what's going on around and and him moving through it in mm-hmm. in this case well in the case of michael men's public enemies he was a kind of a criminal who was mostly desperate mm-hmm. he was in flight he was looking over his shoulder um, he was nervous uh, in a quiet kind of way but not relaxed um he was intensive emotional even intellectual a little bit. I mean, the guy he's playing in Black Mass is similarly a criminal. Similar, right. I mean, he's actually, in a way, a more vicious criminal because Dillinger was essentially a thief. But yeah. this, guy, this guy now, he's not a killer, right. but he becomes one because uh, he suffers a tremendous, almost unmeasurable personal trauma. And as a result of that, he becomes very bitter and hard and he starts becoming violent, terrifyingly violent. In fact, picking up certain kinds of harmonic threads of Joe Pesci and Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. Right? And there is, in fact, a scene in the movie, which is a total steal from the nightclub scene with Joe Pesci and Goodfellas. Yeah. Um, so, the, fa- the false sense of security that like, kind of attacks, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah. But he knows it. I mean, Depp is not uh, ignorant about any of this stuff. And he's, he's adding flavors and textures of menace that no one has seen before. No one has seen them on screen in terms of criminal activity before. We Even if you go back to Edward G. Robinson, you don't get uh, the quality, cold-hearted, cold-blooded, and methodical kind of viciousness that we see in the death performance here. And we've never seen it. It's a business opportunity. Get the FBI to fight our wars against our enemies while they protect us. We do whatever we want. One of the things that really struck me about the film was his vocality. Johnny Depp is a musician. You have to understand that. He's always been a musician, right mm-hmm. through it. Right, You go right back to the beginning. 
he works on a character by figuring out two different things that have to at some point come together, but they don't start together. One of them is what this character is going to look like. And sometimes it's very elaborate. There may be a tremendous amount of put on, as with, yeah. say, Edward Scissorhands or Captain Jack. Sure. This movie's a little bit elaborate with the with the eyes and the hair and the physique and the costuming. Absolutely. A tr- he's put on some weight. He's got the, the blue contact lenses. He's got the hair thing. Uh, it's a tremendous physical transformation. But this is not news to Johnny Depp fans. Right. He's... A tremendous physical transformation is what everybody recognizes immediately in his work. But the other thing is, he picks um, a kind of timbre of the voice of the person he's going to do. He has to know not only the way this person would uh, use language, mm-hmm. so, you know, ethnically, dialectically, where's this being coming from and how does he talk? There's that. But more importantly to him, it's what is the sound of this guy's voice? In an orchestral metaphor, are we talking about uh, a woodwind or a string, or are we talking about a brass? What are we talking about? And where in the treble and alto and bass range is this voice? So for this role, he brought his voice down a whole tone from anything before, and he's added some gravel. Mm Mm-hmm. And he emphasizes vowels in a certain way, partly because it's Bostonian, partly because he wants the words to grate on you. So, you know, to listen to Black Mass would be a real experience. What do you think about this? Do you buy into the movie's um, moments of humanity that it creates for him or tries to create for him? Um, Say with his family? Yeah, or like with playing gin rummy with his mom at the table or something like that. Because I think a lot the of bit with the mom was just overwhelming. Uh, uh, positively, it was wonderful. Oh, okay. It was, yeah, absolutely wonderful. Um, because he has to let mom win. Mm-hmm. You see, the game that he's playing with mom is he's telling his mom that she's cheating on him. Right. Uh, he always has to play that game. You get the sense of the, the traditional routine between them, that it's gone on for on and on and on and on and on. Okay, And you have to understand, an actor, he's working in, um, in confines in a way. Like, he didn't write the script, so right. he's got to be able to play a moment. Um, it won't give the audience anything important if they're told. The mom dies, so he loses his right. mom. Yeah. Okay. Well, in order to feel that this guy, Jimmy, has lost something, we need a moment where we get the roundness and the depth and the fullness of the relation between them. Mm-hmm. But the script only gave him one scene. Yeah, imagine that you have to do a lot of work, but you have to do it inside of three minutes. Right. Yeah. That's really an interesting problem. And most people, I think, who look at acting don't look at those kinds of issues, but they're always present. I need to know everything you know about the Winter Hill Gang and specifically what you know about your former boss and now fugitive, James Whitey Bulger. Well, let's start. See, I think that's an interesting point about... um, these sort of like two-sided characters of Depp and like what you bring to the screen with, you know, this specific character. And I mean, we'll get into it in a second, but all 
three of these characters, even though they're pretty similar films, I would say, like the rise and fall of crime lords, basically, or people involved in organized crime. Mm-hmm. Um, this one's particularly different because Whitey Bulger is like, I mean, it's revealed pretty quickly that he's like a psychopath. Sure. Like he does have, he is human and he has like human things, but like he's definitely a psychopath. So showing the two sides of this, I think is a really good way to show that, you know, Johnny Depp has some range in here and that, I mean, I think that's the big question of the movie is can you ultimately sympathize with somebody who basically, if he has like a principle to do so, he'll kill anyone for basically any reason. Yeah. I was really on the lookout for moments when you kind of know because of the contacts and the makeup job and the hair, you know from pictures that he's going to be like freaky. Um, right. And I was really sort of holding out for the moments where it was just like, let me just see you like see you interact with another actor in a way that doesn't seem scripted already by character type. Um, see, and I think that's funny. And I think one of the moments that I would point to as an example for that is the moment where he's uh, with Joel Edgerton's wife. And so this is like later on in the film um, where Joel Edgerton uh, has these crime guys over for dinner and the wife is very upset that this FBI guy, and he's like not undercover or anything. (laughs) Whitey Bulger becomes an informant for the FBI, but like the line gets pretty blurry about who's running who pretty quickly. And anyway, the wife of Joel Edgerton gets upset about this and like goes up and says that she's not feeling well. And Johnny Depp goes uh, upstairs and has this scene with her and maybe you can find a clip of this because this audio is great because I think it'll prove my point that the way he says the lines you don't think he's doing anything weird he's like being really Mm -hmm. like nice and like sympathetic so if you were just hearing the dialogue you'd think oh that's not that weird but he's like weirdly touching her the whole time in like a very threatening way yes that I think is really interesting you know, I think it, sh- it shows like Depp's uh, ability here that he can almost have, you know, this sort of Justin Bieber, what do you mean esque moment where his <laughs> his eyes are saying yes, but his aggressive hand gestures all over another man's wife are certainly saying no. Yeah, the and a, a moment I like that's like quite a bit different actually is there's this moment where. Um, it's like both produce kind of a similar sense of dread. Uh, his, the guy who's essentially his partner has like had this entanglement with a prostitute. Who's oh like, yeah, Stephen like, something. Yeah, he's like she's like maybe eighteen and she's been picked up by the oh, police. Oh yeah, like a course, hard maybe, like an old school uh, Alicia Cuthbert maybe on that yeah. one. Yeah, um, and. Whitey needs to know like what the heck? What did she tell the police? And he is pissed at andrew um for like kind of what I thought it was Ste- steven or steven sorry um he's pissed at steven for sort and it's sort of like a why would you ever like don't we have enough going on without this and the whole scene is kind of, their front seat squabble is shot with the camera in the back seat and her in a long view walking out of the police station toward the car that they're in right and he is like telling Stephen off and then gives kind of like a almost like a Seinfeldian like yeah hi wave to her as she's like coming up because she doesn't know um that anything 
is wrong. And like those were sort of the moments that I really liked. Well, that's what I think is interesting. And I sort of pieced this together when I was watching Donnie Brasco later. But I think what makes these movies like somewhat tolerable is there like weird levity at moments? And I thought that scene, I mean, it ends in like a pretty dark way, but I thought like the lead up to that scene is like, it's almost comedy Mm -hmm. because they're, I mean, they're pretending that they feel one way when they both know something else is going to happen. And then they sort of dupe this, you know, the funny guy sort of character, which is this young girl who doesn't realize anything is horribly wrong. Right. So I think there are these funny moments and especially like the scene at the beginning with Whitey Bulger. He yells at his buddy because he's putting his dirty fingers in the peanut bowl. Yeah. (laughs) Like he's got these, and even the scene with the gin, like he's picking on his mom saying that she's cheating. Yeah. You know, like there are these great moments of levity that I think make this movie, you know, otherwise it would be insufferably bleak. Yeah. I feel like that's a good segue, though, into what I think is... The fact that this movie is insufferably bleak? (laughs) Well, I think it doesn't know... It doesn't know what to do with Whitey Bulger, because at a certain point, I don't think it knows why it even made this movie. You know what I mean? This movie... And correct me if I'm wrong or you disagree, but I think this movie is like a montage looking for a movie. Totally. Whitey Bulger. And what I think is so interesting, if you look at it in the context of crime dramas, and my girlfriend made a good point saying, like, this one clearly doesn't want to be compared to other crime dramas, just in, like, the episodic nature of, like, oh, now they do this heist, or now they do this scam, or, like, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Like, every great crime movie is almost like a series of random heists that, like, add up to whoever ends whoever wins the game of thrones basically sure or or cultural like montage which is like right. what goodfellas or casino is kind of but this movie exists without showing whitey bulger actually committing any crimes other than the fallout to crimes he's already committed it really uses phrases like racketeering and vending machines as right. just props. And like people is like me sitting there in the audience are like, what the hell's a vending machine? And like, what sort of racketeering is he involved in? I mean, yeah. you find out at the end that he's like doing the basic, like, Hey, protection, like give us 10% kind of racketeering. Yeah, yeah. But there are no scenes of that. Right. Up until like the very end. Yeah. So <sighs> it was weird sort of understanding And that's why you needed that sort of – because the whole movie is basically set in, you know, I guess the late 80s. And it's during these interviews where people who worked with him are reflecting on moments they had with him basically. Right. So – but the reason you need that sort of narrative structure is the fact that you need the narrative that they're telling you – or the narration they're telling you that says like, oh, here's the things where you're involved in because you're never going to see them. Yeah. And I was so, I'm glad you brought that up, that structure of the the interviews that you need to kind of like bridge everything together. But I was so frustrated with like how little it committed to those because the problem with this right. movie, I think, is that for a movie about Whitey Bulger, it doesn't have a take on Whitey Bulger. Like, right. is this guy a human? Is this guy a monster? Like at a certain point, and that point is like maybe a third of the way, it's scared to answer. So it just kind of like well, give it, it just gives you events. Afraid, it's also afraid to analyze him as a human being in the last two thirds of the movie. 
Like in the last two thirds of the movie, you don't yeah. see him go home. Yeah. You know, he doesn't sleep. He doesn't have a meal. Yeah. Like he doesn't do anything. Like I feel like in, you know, in Donnie Brasco or even in Public Enemies, you see him like at his leisure. Where right. in this, like he's always involved in some element of like getting away with something or some conversation. Well, I think that's the problem with the movie is it has this identity and focal point issue of it doesn't know who the movie's about. Is yeah. it about Joel Edgerton? Is it about Johnny Depp? I mean, yep. it even gives you sort of that red herring at the beginning that it's going to be about the dude Jesse from Plemons. Friday Night. Yeah, Jesse Plemons, because he's who like opens the movie, and yeah. you think he's gonna. At least I sort of assumed it was going to have that Goodfellas totally sort of. He's the Henry Hill character. Young, right, he's the Henry Hill. Like he's the one who's brought into the fold, and that's how you sort of get to understand the Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci characters. But that's not the movie gives up on that after the first scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's I don't know, man. And I'm glad you brought I'm glad you bring up the FBI thing, because then I think it also becomes like a marketing problem. Like this has been pitched as and will be remembered as the Johnny Depp, scary, dread gangster movie. Right. But at a certain point, because it's so I don't know, it's unwilling to or incapable of making the movie about him in any sort of like original fictional narrative way. Right. the story of the movie is way over here with Joel Edgerton. It's by far the more like interesting thing. But in that movie, like Whitey Bulger should be this bogeyman on the edges, but the movie, it can't do that. It can't ask Johnny Depp to not be at the center of this movie. Right. So well, it, cause it's going to be, I mean, they figured out pretty quickly. The movie is going to be like an awards Johnny Depp movie. And so that's how it's been marketed. Well, I feel like this is going to be my big thesis of the night is that, And I think this colors all the movies we'll talk about and most of Johnny Depp's career is the fact that I think Johnny Depp is a brilliant actor, but I think he's a terrible leading man. And I think that that's one of the big problems with this movie is they don't they equally don't give him enough to do, but also rely on him too much to carry the weight of this movie. He's ugly in this movie. He's scary looking. He's not. somebody that you like can count on and i don't think audiences know joel edgerton well enough to go into a movie where he's the lead guy right yeah i agree with you and i mean to that point though like also like look at what we consider to be the canonical successful gangster movies of the last 40 years none of them are on the back of one person the universes are too big to right sustain that like you always have a De Niro with a Joe Pesci and a Ray Liotta or a Pacino with a Brando and a Duvall like right or a Depp with uh an Al Pacino sure yeah and and a great Michael Madsen that's it's a, it's an interesting point when you because all these movies they're all come into our world movies like you'll never right. under, you have to come be introduced to understand our shadow world and you can't right. do that with but one there are no real scenes of even like I mean take a movie I mean you can cut to Murray on this one because I know he talks about this but take a movie like Heat where you have two actors building towards a climactic scene with each other yeah and that should have been this movie with Joel Edgerton and Johnny Depp working towards this big scene but their last scene together they're like looking out at a bridge 
Yeah. You know, it's like the scene in the Truman show where he's like, everything's <laughs> cool, man. Like, don't worry about it. And they don't have their, like you have all these, you haven't, this movie has incredible talent in it. Yes. It is Benedict Cumberbatch. It's got Dakota Johnson. It's got uh, Corey Stahl. Yes. You know, it's got Kevin Bacon. It's got Adam Scott. Yes. This movie has everybody in it, yet none of them are in a scene with anybody that's interesting, specifically Johnny Depp. Right. <laughs> it's true. Like the, well, but, and, and just to, you know, to put an end note on that, like, this is also my problem with, like, why make this movie as a biopic? Because, like, at a certain point, maybe the events of Whitey Bulger's alliance with the FBI weren't actually that interesting. So, like, it's on... Well, it's interesting you go in, ahead like, a and, non-fiction book kind of way. Yeah, but, like, if you're going to make this into a movie, like, go ahead and make up parts of the story to create narrative action. Like, right. I don't care, but, like, I think the movie tipped its hand in its fright about going against real life when it did right. sort of the... I'm Whitey Bulger, the old man in the elevator at the end. It's just like no one gives a shit. That is not a replacement right. for well, having It's also an... a crime drama without any crime. <laughs> Shoo. Uh, let's rate this, shall we? Absolutely. Well, let's tell me what you say. Well, so let's ex- let's explain real quick our rating system. Um, we oh, absolutely. Rate, we rate movies with a two-sided metric. Two words, good and bad. Uh, the first one refers to what we deem to be uh, technical quality and execution, and the second one is watchability and rewatchability and entertainment value. Um, so a good, good movie, we can zip through these real fast, would be like The Departed, a good A ba- great crime drama with some great scenes of crime. <laughs> By a pretty good crime director. Uh, right. A good a good bad movie, Noah, is a movie that you recognize the value of but have no desire to watch. Requiem for a Dream, Schindler's List, things on along this, these lines. A bad good movie is a pretty like flawed movie, but one that's entertaining enough to compensate. Right. Uh, executive Decision. Um, Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. Even I would say Absolute Power. You ever seen that, Clint Eastwood? Gene I Hackman? I haven't. And Bad Bad would be no redeeming quality of any kind, both narrative uh technical or watchability um like any sort of wayne's brothers movies um so based upon that rating scale black mass i think is bad good because i was we have enumerated the ways in which the ways in which it's put together are right just a mess it seems like People were either fighting about how it should be put together or were scared to death or just didn't want to do it. Um, but I think the scenes and I think Depp and how terrifying he is. And I think you mentioned all the talent. And I think that at a certain point when you have that much punching power, like the individual scenes can be interesting. So bad good for me. Yeah, I feel like this one is, uh, I would agree with you, bad good. Um, I feel like I'll give this one like another watch in a couple of years. Yeah. We'll see where I land on it. Um yeah, but it was it was entertaining. I mean, I was watching this. I wasn't bored, um, right. but I was also like really hoping something cool would happen, and then like it, it did didn't not. really. And I really don't like. And this is uh, a crime of all three of these movies. Yes, maybe with Public Enemies, movies that basically end with title cards, or uh, they end with um, their epilogues are like, and then he went to prison for fifty years. You know. Oh. 
you know? And to my other, I agree with you. And to my other point, like, again, I think it's just indicative of like a misunderstanding about what movies like based on real things should do or need to do. I think it shows like a, that your priorities are in the wrong place. Like, right. Cause that, that implies that you can't tell the full story with a movie. And then if you can't do that, you shouldn't have done it. And then also the idea that this is somehow a, like a, a fair representation of some historical events. Yeah. And all these are based on true stories tonight, yeah. these movies. Yeah. But I feel like you go into them knowing that they're movies. Yeah. And so like by ending them with title cards, like, yes, I get that Whitey Bulger was then arrested in 2011. And yes, like all these guys went to jail for a really long time. But like, that's not the reason I didn't come to the movies for like a history lesson. I came for a narrative about this guy's life or something in which he's a character. Yeah. And thus, if you make a good movie or a perfect movie, I guess, or just a movie with an to... angle where the incidental right. facts don't matter. I can look that up whenever. So next up, why don't we talk about Donnie Brasco? Does that work all right by you, Noah? I would love that. Okay. So we are talking about the 1997 uh, Mike Newell-directed gangster movie starring Johnny Depp, and he is across from Al Pacino. Noah, would you like to synopsize this one? Yeah, I mean, basically this guy, uh, Joe, what's his last name? Pistone. Joe Pistone is this police officer, or is his FBI agent, and he gets planted um, sort of adjacent to this crime family um, in which Al Pacino is sort of a, you know, peripheral member. Low-level gun. Yeah, and then he basically, through a series of uh, events, he infiltrates this crime family and ultimately gets pretty far to, to the top in attempting to bring them down uh, from within. Yeah. So that kind of gets us there, doesn't it? Totally, totally. Um, and I th- one of the best things about this movie um, by far is, I think, is the number of things that Depp is juggling as a performer, both for us um, and for the gangsters so let's hear right because he's yeah he's a man playing another man yeah it's a great it's a great double performance so let's hear uh professor murray pomerantz talk about donnie brasco which is a, a great chapter in his 2005 book johnny depp starts here so let's throw to murray i want to ask you a, a question that um pertains to your book on johnny murray uh the johnny depp starts here it seems like one of your and i'm just sort of curious this is sort of like a long view question in your observation of him the last couple decades but it seems like one of like the central sort of like theses of the book is that like depp is so captivating because like his essence or his personhood i think the word you use is like ungraspable by the audience it's always sort of eluding them and and flying around and i wonder if like is that something you realized um looking back over his filmography to write the book or was there a run of films that made you that kind of solidified in your mind like this is a person whose personhood is not important to these movies and in fact we can't find it and maybe that's why we like it well that's a really hot question but i don't think I can give a quick answer to it. Um, I can play around it a little bit. It wasn't, um, 
Your question presumes that there was a kind of trigger moment, and you want to know where was the trigger, and the answer is there wasn't one trigger. Okay. A number of things happened at different times, and then I think they began to accrete one on top of the other, and I maybe began to see something more fully. First of all, um, I had read about Johnny Depp, I think, in a French magazine. So I was interested in seeing this being. And the first time I did see this being, what I saw was not 21 Jump Street. It was Edward Scissorhands. You're right away seeing a masquerade and layering. And also tremendous Mm -hmm. talent. I mean, his ability as a mime was just immediately present. And the vocality. But what you really was, you you couldn't get at anything other than the Edwardness of Edward. Uh-huh. And as I saw other films, I kept, I did in fact see this. Let's just summarize it by calling it the masquerade. The masquerade <laughs> was intensive. Okay, uh-huh. this is early on, um, and, the word, and then I began to see number two, <clears throat> radically differing techniques for achieving the masquerade. It wasn't always um, makeup on the face and clothing and hairdo, uh, like say with Donnie Brasco. It was accent and mannerism. Uh-huh. Okay, so the, the, because you see the flipping between the times when he's with Al Pacino and the times when he's with Anne Hesch, you get the radical discontinuity between the personalities. But he's doing it all through the way he talks and the way he behaves. So I saw tremendous ability at Masquerade. And then somewhere in and, in and around there, I started looking through various pop schlock um fan heat magazines like, you know, uh-huh. I'm horny on Johnny kind of stuff. And what I kept seeing again and again and again, it was like religious ritual. It was so frequent and repeated was a kind of a desire to get in there and b frustration that these people weren't able to, that he was confusing them. Even the publicity seemed riddled with confusion, and there was no point at which we ever caught a glimpse of anything that wasn't got up. All the public appearances were highly stylized and masqueraded. Uh-huh. In other words, he's always hiding. I want to ask uh, if I can move to to Braska really quick. I was curious what you what you think about how he plays across from. Pacino, because I was when I was looking at his filmography. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> well, it is good. Uh, when I'm looking at his filmography, there just you know there really aren't that many moments. Uh, I mean, you got Wandon DeMarco with Brando, but there aren't that many moments where he's like asked to be across for long periods of time from people who might have a higher profile um, than him. Like, and I think if you look at like some of his contemporaries, like they like Leo might have done that like a lot more. Um, and so I wonder what what do, you, what do you make of like Johnny spending all that time across from someone who at that moment would have been a more revered actor? Well, I think Johnny has reverence. Yeah, that's what it is. He wants to be with legendary performers from whom he can learn. He wants to learn as he goes. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually did Brando twice. He worked with Brando in his own movie, The Brave. And as oh, yeah. well as in Don Juan DeMarco. And he wanted to get as close as he could to Marlon Brando and figure out what the, what the, the gesture of performance was that w- one could perhaps begin to make out of oneself. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and Pacino, you know, again for him was a master at um, swift, swiftly calculated emotional expression. You have to remember that both these guys were not necessarily bigger than Johnny was in terms of fame and celebrity when he worked with them. He was up there. Mm. So he was in effect saying, no, 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 I want to pick people who came before me. In the book, the section on um, Donnie Brasco, uh, you spend a lot of time with what I think is probably one of the most memorable scenes of the movie, which is where the whole of Sonny Black's gang goes to the sushi restaurant and and uh, Donnie slash Joe can't take off his boots in accordance with Japanese custom because, you know, he's an FBI agent and he is he has a recording device in his shoe. And so he has... And in his sock, under his sock, right. Oh, yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah and his so... leg, it'll be visible if he takes his boots off. Yeah. And so he has to stage and improvise this thing via, like, two characters um, about a backstory where... Because um, the movie's set... do with his father in the war? Yeah, the movie's set in like the mid '70s, and so yeah, where he has a very anti-Japanese attitude, and he's not going to take off his shoes, and of course they end up like mercilessly beating the maitre d when he, when he insists. But you you write um, really well in in that section of the book about how it's it's such like a, a layered and circular moment, and I wonder if the fact that um, Depp is managing both of those characters like up against each other. Um, and in an intertwining relationship with each other. Do you think Brasco is maybe one of the tallest tasks of his career in terms of like layered performance? Well, I, you know, I think eh, what you're pointing to helps me see why you would want to talk to someone about Black Mass in terms of Donnie Brasco. See, Black Mass is actually not a recapitulation of Donnie Brasco. It just smells a little bit like Donnie Brasco. Sure, yes. Yeah. And, 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 and I was wondering when you asked me about this interview whether you were taking that very superficial view, but I see now that you're not. Because you see, in Donnie Brasco, uh, he had to, in that scene, he had to convey to you watching the movie two things, and they're mm-hmm. diametrically opposed, and you had to buy both of them. Right. One you know, was his capacity for horrific violence, and thus his membership in the gang. Mm-hmm. The other one was that he was only putting all that on, and he had to put it on. He was desperate, and his life was at stake. Right. And you had to buy both of those things. In other words, you had to be pitying him when he kicked that guy. Simultaneously realizing he needed to do it, or else he would die. That's right. I mean, he, he was keeping up a performance, but in that film, uh, I mean, one of the things I write about in that chapter is that in that film, the performance is one's life. It's not just, I am an actor by trade. It's that if you lose your role for a tenth of a second, they'll put a bullet in your head. Please, take off shoes. What are you kidding me? Take off your pants. What the fuck is that? I'm afraid it's necessary. It's a Japanese tradition. Is that right? Well, forget about it. I ain't doing it. I'm afraid it's necessary. Forget it. I ain't taking my fucking shoes off. I have a sort of a th- like a theory about this movie okay. that this movie is not in fact a crime drama, but in fact it is a crime comedy. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think that that adds sort of, I mean, that sort of shapes Depp's performance or maybe the performance shapes, I guess that theory, but the idea of there's so many great moments where he could get caught and lose and like blow his cover 
but then he has to do something ridiculous in order to mm. throw the attention away from him and continue with this con. That's smart. So you mean comedy in like a very kind of like literary, like what do the players right. in a comedy do? I think you're totally well, if you right. Look at a sh- like, if you look at the rest of the film uh, or the, the rest of the films and sort of look them in the idea of like, what's a Shakespearean tragedy and what's a Shakespearean comedy. Sure. Like nobody dies in like the end of this movie. You know, it's all implied. What happens is he just gets unmasked and then has to like learn a lesson. Sure. So in that sense, it is a comedy. Um, I guess there's no real wedding in there, but he like reunites with his family Hmm. and he like reunites with that sort of institution where in the other movies, it's based on people like being thrown in prison or being killed. And I think it's also, it's really funny too with Al Pacino, who is not, I mean, it's sort of a buddy comedy. In some ways, you have this guy who's a complete schmuck, Al Pacino, who's been trying to like bust his way to the top of this gang. And I mean, he'll say things like, I can't believe they killed the Don. I can't believe they killed the Don. And they had the nerve to not even include me when they did it. (laughs) You know, things like that. He's kind of a sad case. Yeah, but he's like this, but he's he's comedic. Right. And you have the straight Johnny Depp with, like, the real stakes, because he's our protagonist in this one, sort of feeding off of this in almost like a, like a Laurel and Hardy kind of way. Hmm. So one of the things I want to talk about with this, I guess we're halfway through, so I can talk about it now. I think that gangster movies in particular are hard to make now, especially because we know so well what the pantheon of all right. gangster media is. We know it's The Godfather and Goodfellas, and I think you should throw in, like, The Sopranos, too. Um, right. Like, we... It's it's interesting or hard to make good gangster movies because if they're good and not great, it's, like, immediately obvious, like, where, right. where they rest in comparison because we're so aware of the better... Um, entries. But one of the things I like about this movie, the way to get around that, I think, is to change the viewpoint or change the context. Um, and I like this movie's sort of vision of what mobster life is like because we so often think yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we so often think of it as this like fast track or cheat sheet for getting around capitalism, basically. You don't have to be a square guy with a day job. And what you see is that these guys you know, they're part of the same hustle. They are just trying to to make their nut to pay some guy to get their name in a book for some superficial placement in right. the rank and file. I like the way that it de-glamorized. Well, what I also think, and I think this plays back into my thesis too, that it's a comedy, is like the irony of the fact that they are breaking the law to make less money in a lot of cases. Like these, this particular, I mean, I think what's original about this movie is these guys are not successful. That's the whole like narrative of the movie is they don't have enough scams. Like they're, they don't have the money to pay for their infrastructure. Yeah. And that is ultimately their undoing. And that is ultimately the undoing of any crime like person or crime, you know, uh, organized crime thing is eventually you don't have enough money to pay for it. Yeah. Eventually it costs too much to do the heists. And that's what happens at the end with the uh, the casino mm-hmm. is they didn't have enough money 
to pay off the cops. Yeah, it's true. Because they're paying for all this this glamour. Well, and I think Donnie Brasco is also a good, I mean, pulling away from our crimes of Johnny Depp a little bit and just looking at crime films in general. My question is like, why be an organized crime? Like <laughs> what's, what's the, I mean, as portrayed by these movies, like what's the end game here? Like, what's the point of it? You like, uh, I mean, everyone you've ever known has either been killed or died penniless, like, from emphysema. Mm-hmm. Like, why are these guys doing it? Like, what is the goal? That's a good point. This one's kind of tricky because I think at a certain point, like, if somebody tapped you on the mo- on the shoulder during the movie and you would be like, hey, is Johnny Depp the Henry Hill character? You're like, yeah, of course he is. And then you remember that, like, no, he's not interested in this. Like, he's doing his job. He has to be there. Um, so right. Donnie Brasco in particular is... Um, well, that's the arc of the movie, is that uh, Donnie Brasco, it's not that he, like, gets sucked into this crime world and it's so glamorous. Because Henry Hill, up until the end, like, likes what he was doing. Oh, he loves it. Ever since he Whereas, was a kid. Yeah, whereas Donnie Brasco is this guy realizes too late that by being involved with these guys, like, he's, like, going to die if anything goes wrong. Sure. Like, if he is, like, figures out the, you know, how to, I mean, he'll he'll never figure out a way to, like, stop them. Yeah. And the only, and the FBI who's planted him in there don't care about that. Right. And so the only way to sort of, because he has that great speech to Anne Heche at the ends, where he's like, because she says something to the effect of like, you're becoming one of them. And he throws back to her like, I'm not becoming one of them, I am one of them. Right. And he realizes that his job was just as bad as organized crime was, because that's what it is. Yeah. I think... He's part of the system. Yeah. If you're wondering why, I think the case for this movie, for Joe Pistone and Donnie Brasco, is that I think it's a PTSD movie. I think that this job ruins his sense of stakes and importance for everything else in life. Just like someone who like leaves the military and it's just like, I, yeah. I'm not only shocked by what is in my rearview mirror, but it just seems like nothing else is important or can give me the sense right. of purpose that that gave me. And I think Depp, I think Depp is sneaky good in this role too, because well, I, that's th- what I want to, yeah, you go ahead. It is probably, actually I will say yes. It's, if you look at his filmography, top to bottom, it's understated by comparison to everything else. But I think it it's a good movie for explaining whatever his movie stardom is, like that intangible thing that's uh, that's on well, him somewhere. This... Because, hold one second. He's not sure. this... You think about someone who's undercover, you think, like, I gotta blend in. And that's not true. He really kind of seduces the people in this movie with whatever he has. Right, because at the end, for a moment, they don't even believe he could be an undercover agent. Exactly, like, yeah. He, he hasn't blended in. He's, like, stood out as an excellent exactly. uh, mobster. So, well, I think this goes back, and this can tip my hand a little bit, too. I think this movie's great, and but I think it's part of that Johnny Depp curse where this is a super underrated movie, and, like, I feel like a lot of people haven't seen this movie, but I think it's like one of the better crime movies 
But I just don't think Johnny Depp is, like, a good leading man. And I don't think this movie, like, in a marketing sense, the way they marketed Black Mass, I just don't think, like, people went to see it. Mm-hmm. You know? And, I mean, I think, I mean, all these movies are not, like, huge. I mean, we'll see about Black Mass, but I doubt it. It didn't, like, debut very high. They're not financial successes. Are you saying he's not a good leading man because if you try to put the movie on his back, the movie will fail, but if you have a a movie that's good enough not to be on his back, it'll still be marketed that way? Well, I think my... My sort of theory about this is that Johnny Depp is a great supporting actor. Like, if you look at his a career, and I went, a character actor, but, like, one who really commits. Mm-hmm. He's a, I think he's a great actor. Like, after watching these movies, like, very closely, I think he's, like, a really good actor. And listening to Murray's interview convinced me as well. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, he's not a good, like, marketing-wise, a good leading man for these big movies. So all the movies, if you look back, that he was the starring role, this is just the past ten years, You've got Mordecai, huge bomb, Transcendence, huge bomb, Dark Shadows, huge bomb, Rum Diary, The Tourist, Sweeney Todd. That was the only one that made a little bit of money, but it was not like a huge success by any means. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Secret Window, and From Hell. Like these were not movies that did very well. But then if you look at movies where he's a supporting role, yes, you like drew in crowds saying he was in this movie, but like... He's in this supporting role. The movie's about Orlando Bloom and Kira Knightley. He's just there for comedic relief in brilliant fashion, mind you. Yeah. But he's ultimately the supporting character. Right. And honestly, there's just something about him, and I don't really know what it is, but that keeps him from connecting to audiences in a way that can believe him as like a Tom Cruise or like however they want to. He's somewhere, he's stuck between Tom Cruise and Daniel Day Lewis. I think that's, I think you, I agree with you 100%. I think one of the things that Murray talks about really well, both in my interview and in the writing, is that like he is elusive. And I'll take it a step further. I'll say that like the quote unquote real Johnny Depp is elusive the way like an artiste like performer is elusive. Like, I, but I think when you get to a certain point where that person has done so many costumes and voices and things that all distract from what you might consider any kind of real persona. It's like you have all these, like, I don't know, it's like you have colored sand or something, and you can blow mm. it or, you can blow it around into all these beautiful shapes. Um, well, think, like, but it's still difference... sand. It's not like a Tom Cruise. It's not like there's a, there's a persona that I know at the center of it, and the movie will kick him and prod him into showing different sides of it. I don't think there right. is any, like, essential Johnny Depp, and that might frustrate people... looking for a leading man but i think because he's not he's picking movies that you need somebody like that in like these are not daniel day lewis roles right i mean the only movie i can really think of that is like a super out there like artistic movie then i think he's brilliant in but like it's an indie movie was dead man did you ever see that never seen dead man the the jim jarmusch movie it's a great movie i mean it's like a it's a western but like with jim jarmusch doing it so it you know it's bizarre But again, like, I think he, if he wanted to be treated like Daniel Day-Lewis and act the way he's currently acting, he's just not picking like the right movies. He's picking pretty mainstream sort of genre movies. Mm -hmm. And I mean, but maybe that's the roles that he's getting. Maybe he's just misunderstood by the Hollywood machine. 
That could well be. But he's also probably getting paid really well, too. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, we haven't rated Donnie Brasco. Well, we could talk about it some more. I feel like we went on a huge rant. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, do you have anything? I'm not sure I have much else to say about it other than... Well, I think... I mean, I think Pacino is brilliant in this movie. I think he's okay. Um, really? I thought the fact that... I mean, he really had me... Like, I felt bad for him. Yeah, I agree. I do. I did. But and I think at a certain point, playing, that was the... I mean, his o- only... His only need in this movie is to be respected. Yeah. He just wants somebody to respect him. And I think that's such a, like telling Pacino that and then having him do his thing is like fascinating to watch. Yeah. I wish I would have, I wish we would have gotten um, a lefty confronting Sonny Black, who's played by Michael Madsen, who's the. Uh, um, he's great too. He's so good. I admit every time I see Michael Madsen, it's just like, why can that guy not work more or I mean, he's he, a scumbag. Yeah, it might, is, you might be. Um, is he? Is there something I don't know about Michael Madsen? Oh, I feel like he's been like in trouble with the law for drunk driving and whatnot oh, okay. a, a, several times. Okay, well, there you go. Um, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, I, was, I was waiting for sort of like a more confrontational scene between Lefty and Sonny Black. I, I felt like the most interesting plot parts of this movie where they go to Florida... Um, which are, are right. really cool tangents. I felt like Pacino kind of like was like a weird shadow in those moments. Um, that was well, like a reminder. Thing, he is, he's being pushed yeah. out of the group. Right. I just wanted his exile to be more interesting. Okay. That's I, I really I liked his mournful stares. <laughs> he had many of them. Yeah. There's 26 kills. But I think what's so good about this movie too, in addition to the performances is the fact that like, like a good gangster movie should, it has these great sort of episodic crimes yep. and it shows like the planning for them and how they got started and like how you sort of inception the idea of a, a specific thing. And because these guys are so desperate because they're not making any money, like the internal politics are killing them. Mm-hmm. They're really, they'll do whatever. And they end up, you know, you see them in there within the room, like tapping open like uh, parking, parking meters. meters, and like you know they're talking about, oh, I got a guy who's got a truckload of razor blades. Yeah. You know, like it's these are not high stakes things. So when Donnie brings them the whole idea of this casino and this nightclub, it's just so interesting to see like the how you know how they go from a to b yeah they kind of don't know how to act it's kind of it's cool right it's cool um before we rate it i will say that i think i think this movie's good too i think it sucks because of what i talked about before and how the great movies in this genre are like at the front of your mind it sucks for this movie that i don't think it has a great sense of style um uh like it doesn't it doesn't really pop very much like especially with the soundtrack like you think about some of the most iconic moments in Scorsese right. gangster movies are all because of the soundtrack and what he's doing with pre-existing associations to songs like Layla and Go Your Own Way and this movie kind of is just like uh is yeah, this, is, it is this supposed to be benefited a, yeah from like a Tarantino style touch exactly yeah for sure um, a stronger voice exactly yeah it, it it creates a great stressful scene for the actors and then it kind of steps back from itself and it's just like, um, should we 
do violins. Like it doesn't, it is not guided by the sense of Scorsesean style or anything like that. Right. No. But I think for me, well, what's your rating going to be, Chance? I would call it good, good, but not great. You say like a soft good, good? Mm-hmm. Interesting. See, I feel like this movie, and it was good that we saw just Johnny Depp movies because like I didn't have to think about the other like mafia movies that it sort of, he definitely takes a nod from like, this is not just like Johnny, this is Johnny Depp before he was like really a household name. I mean, he, he was growing, but it's, I think that as like a Hollywood sort of like buddy comedy movie, which is how I kind of saw this. I think it's pretty great, man. Like, I think this is like one of the, like the real underrated like crime movies. Yeah. It's pretty underrated. I don't know. I feel like this movie should deserve more respect, but I feel like the general, <laughs> the general audience sort of views it as a, uh, you know, just slightly better than Hollywood Homicide or something. Wow. Um, okay. Well, it's certainly much, much better than Hollywood Homicide. Oh sure, but I mean, like that's just like a crime movie where you put two unlikely actors together. Oh. And... Okay. Well, it's a million times better than that. Right, but I think it's great for that. So I'll give it like a hard good good. Okay, that's good. So the way I was going to transition, though, is I think unlike Mike Newell and Scott Cooper, Michael Mann is the sort of director who knows what he wants to do with Johnny Depp. And I think that's something that good directors do. They have an idea of what actors bring to the table beforehand, and they kind of know how they want to treat their quirks. And their ethos. So what I was going to ask you, because you brought up um, Dead Man, don't don't you think that a mid-late career resurgence from Johnny Depp would happen if he worked with directors again who had a stronger voice, who were like, I think I know what Johnny Depp represents, and I'd like to fiddle with that a little bit? Yeah, we'll see... I mean, I can just immediately get into my issue with this movie, which is the overarching thing. Um, I feel like Michael Mann, it, it, the movie is like watching Michael Mann and Johnny Depp shout at each other. And um, I mean, it, it works sometimes in interesting ways, but I feel like you're right in that if he worked with voicier directors, but that understood like what Johnny Depp is doing, I feel like. Michael Mann feels like he needs to carry this movie and is not letting Johnny Depp do like what we saw in the previous two movies Hmm. as far as like showing his duality. Huh? I guess I was just thinking that like, I just feel like now in 2015, I would, I want to see what Jim Jarmusch would do with Johnny Depp. Now he'd probably, he'd probably put him fourth build in a dark quirky movie and it would be really interesting. Right. And well, that's what, but that's what Jim Jarmusch does. He like sets up a camera somewhere in like a middle shot and then just like lets his actors let the writing speak for itself. Right. Like he's not, he's definitely not Michael Mann by any means as far as the sheer camera work that goes on. No, no, no. But I'm, I don't know. I'm just talking about like directors who have an idea of what to do with actors. Um, right. But do you think that Michael Mann knows that? Like, I think, knows how to get the most from his <laughs> actors? Like, I don't understand your point here. I, I think Michael Mann does something with him. I don't think... I'm thinking that he gets a side of Johnny Depp, I, but I don't think he's getting, like, the most from him. Michael Mann, like, right. shapes 
Um, mm-hmm. He likes the, he likes great framing and great shots, and he likes actors who can create great shapes. And Johnny Depp is John Dillinger with that hair and that bone structure and that scar and the way he just right. flies um, through these scenes in front of people. He makes a great right. shape. But why don't we let uh, Murray explain, because he did really well in an essay um, on this movie, why he thinks Johnny Depp makes for such a good John Dillinger. How long did it take you to go through a bank? About one minute, 40 seconds, flat. <laughs> the only way that you would leave a jail cell is when we take you out to execute you. Well, we'll see about that. Let me jump to, to Public Enemies, which uh, you wrote about in an in essay in a collection called uh, Philosophy of Michael Mann. Michael Mann directed Public Enemies in 2009. Um, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind uh, sort of articulating, you make a great case at the beginning of the essay um, because of the public imagination, and I think you might even use the word lust surrounding both Johnny Depp and John Dillinger. Um, you make a great case for why Depp is perfect for playing Dillinger in Michael Mann's version of this movie. And I wouldn't, I want, would you mind kind of articulating why you think that's the case? You just have to know you're closer to this article than I am because I don't remember. <laughs> right. I'll trust you. Um, sure. You have to understand that John Dillinger was a public celebrity. Mm-hmm. And indeed, there were lots of people who wanted to be connected, like touch the hem of his garment, as it were, as he walked past. Like, you know, hey, um, you're famous. I want to get a little bit of that by by rubbing it. Um, you know, magic by contagion is the primitive anthropological uh, issue here. And uh, Depp has that too, you know, that people want to just get near him and say they were standing there. That we are hunting Depp the way they were hunting Dillinger is the point. Yeah. We're still and and the critical comments about Depp, he's finally come back to acting, or he's given up acting, look at this crap he's doing, all that stuff. It's all the way of hunting him. It's our method for hunting. Hmm. Okay, whereas with Dillinger you have the uh Christian Bale character, you know, the sharpshooter with the rifle and blah blah right. blah blah. We use a different kind of sharpshooting. We use the press, we use um, public social media, we do the quick jab, you know, the photograph with a snarky comment, and we think we're really getting at something. Hmm. I think he rejects all that. He's got a sense of value, and he demonstrates that. And then once in a while in his films, his characters will reflect value in a way that seems to be honorable. And I think we identify him with that honor. Put it away. I'm here for your money. Here for the bench money. So maybe let's get into the plot of this movie. Chance, you want to? Sure. Um, I guess John Dillinger, if you don't know, was a, a celebrity bank robber during the American Great Depression. Uh, was a Midwest guy with a, a gang that included uh, names like Pretty Boy Floyd and Babyface Nelson, which are um, his more famous associates. Um this movie is really staged as sort of and we can we can talk about this, but I think this really is sort of like a fall movie. He's all John Dillinger is already kind of like a backwoods gangster Robin Hood in a in a sort of way. And this movie is kind of portraying his obsolescence or it's just like he doesn't know what to do. Yeah. Like it's 
it's him trying to settle down. It's like him meeting a girl, him like thinking about his one last score. Sure. It's a ch- but it's a changing world of crime right. and criminal justice and he's watching himself become uh something that's unsustainable in He's it. like a lame duck criminal in legacy mode. Mhm. Yep. Um and so I don't know. There's prison breaks and very good stylized bank robberies. And yeah, there's some great sequences. Again, talking about what's good about these movies is these episodic crimes. Yeah. And I think seeing these guys get away with these crimes is, and it's artfully shot and it's very well done. Um, yeah. To, to your point there, um, I suppose the sort of narrative hook is, um, uh, what, is he in Chicago? Now I can't remember. I think, it, is it in Chicago where he meets Marion Cotillard? Um, yeah. He just basically picks her out of a room and decides that they're, destined to ruin each other's lives <laughs> exactly uh, and then on the opposite side of this you have christian bale as the very like button-up fbi upstart killing channing tatum <laughs> in a field um yeah in a in a beautiful shot and he sort of uh from that moment on becomes j edgar hoover uh played by billy crudup is that how you say his name yeah he's i i had no idea that was him until i looked it up later yeah, he's he's not good in this movie. <laughs> okay, but in comparison, my context for him was Russell from Almost Famous, and so I was kind of shocked. Right. Um, but anyway, yeah, it becomes Melvin Purvis's like sole assignment to get Public Enemy Number One, John Dillinger and his gang. John Dillinger. <laughs> Mr. Dillinger, the accents in this movie are yeah. uh, are not terrific. Yeah, it's it's Christian Bale is pretty indecipherable. I mean, you know he's saying like smart, sort of off the cuff things, but like <laughs> you only catch every third word. Right. Oh, so chickens and the fence posts. It's, it's like, like oh. every vowel turns into an e or something like that. <laughs> That's nice. Um. Okay. Uh, so yeah, where do you want to start with this one? Well, can we talk about first impressions? Have you seen this movie before? Yeah, I saw it in theaters when it came out. As did I. And you, I just want to paint a scene for you, like, in historical moment here. Do it. This is, like, right after, um, was this after Miami Vice or is this right after Collateral? This is, yeah, three years after Miami Vice. Which was, like, two years after Collateral? Yeah. Okay, so if I can paint a picture for you. It's the year 2009. It's the year 2009. And, you know, five years ago, six years ago, Collateral with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx has just blown my mind. Such a good movie. A a good, like, without a doubt, good, good movie. The bullets in the fall killed him. It's like, yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) And uh, so, like, a, a good, good movie. One of the... We could use that as an example, I would say. Totally. Um, and then I saw Miami Vice, and it was like, whoa. <laughs> that was certainly a lot. That was a lot. Some cocaine involved in that. Like, yeah, like, you need to, like, pull it back, Michael Mann. Like, what's happening? <laughs> and then I see the trailer for this movie... That literally shows every single one of like the crimes committed mm-hmm. in it, like, and it makes it look like it's collateral level entertainment. Yeah. And then I went to see this movie, which is ultimately a pretty like 
meticulous and like sort of like long sweeping moments drama yeah. that's like sort of an Oscar play, I would say. And I was sort like of. horribly, horribly disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Um. So I remember hating this movie like when it came out because I thought it was just like, because I, I, that's not the movie I was expecting to see. Totally. I was very disappointed too because I wanted a yeah. stylish, exciting gangster movie. And, and it's not. No. It's I mean, it's a character study of John Dillinger, and it's the story of his romance and his downfall. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think what this movie does, and actually I think this is why, um, Murray's essay on this movie is is so good because Michael Mann is sort of already using Johnny Depp as a metaphor or just a figure, or just a figment, because, like, that's where, that's where I think most of the text for this movie is, like, already occurring. Like, this is a movie that you sort of sit for, like, two hours through a few really exciting sequences and a lot of kind of intriguing camera work, and instead of climax, instead of climacies, it has riddles for you yeah just sort of like thought-provoking things but that's not what you want out of most gangster movies right i mean as like well i mean it's just not what you want from an action movie right which this was marketed as yes um or a thriller at least which it's not it's a drama yeah um and i think what's good about this movie is the fact that it lets some actors do some interesting things like it definitely lets you know like billy crudup or christian bale or even johnny depp like really swing for the fences i would say as far as like what michael mann let them do yeah but like should they have done those things <laughs> who's to say but i think what it creates is like a sort of entertaining biopic you know, but sort of like in the same category as like a walk the line or something. Interesting. Like the series of events that like made this guy's life at a particular moment. It's a movie that's made to be dissected for f- like film theory and like visual right. visual study. It's a guy who's trying to make you understand the celebrity that was John Dillinger in the mid thirties by using handheld cameras to show you that he's not the kind of person who would stand still in front of your average Joe at a bank, which is very interesting to think about and very interesting to write about, but not the sort of thing that you latch onto when you sit down for a movie. The, there's also the great scene where at the end he, or near the end when basically all of his associates are dead or in jail when he goes into is it the chicago police station or an fbi office he just like he kind of wanders in and in most movies that's like an audience like yeah like screw the cops like sort of moment and in this movie it's just like what is this like a a strange bit of subtext about like ethereal celebrity like what's what is this yeah yeah I mean, Michael Mann, when he's at his best and even, and he has moments in this movie is in scenes where he's not interested in like characters or like development or like whatever, but he's interested in physical space. Mm -hmm. So that's why the scenes in the bank are so good. And that's why the scenes in the car 
in Collateral are so good, or even in Heat, where there's that shootout, that street is like a canyon where these guys are sort of trapped in. Yeah, that chalk white like, prison yard at the beginning, where right. the black coated depth is the well, only he's thing in there. Space, but when he doesn't have like sort of an interesting confine, his artistic like aesthetic like doesn't give him anything, you know, that interesting, and I think he gets a little concerned. Hmm. Like how much to show because he has like infinite space, you know, like a scene in a hotel room or a scene when then like him and Marion, uh, Johnny Depp and Marion Cotillard are like making love. Like it's not a well done sex scene. Right. Because he's just stuck. It, this is just a room in the house <laughs> and it's or a room in like a hotel. Yeah. It's not cool like a bank vault. It's not, you know, cool like a series of cabins in the woods. Right. Like it's just a room and he doesn't know what to do. So then he becomes interested, like you said, in like shapes. <laughs> right. And so like there's an elbow or like, you know, there's Johnny Depp's like cheekbone. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the sort of things he's focusing on. But I think that what keeps this movie from really being like, you know, like an interesting art film for me is the fact that he has the instincts of just like a really good crime director. And when the script isn't there to make these people human. And I think like there are a lot of flaws in this script. He doesn't know how to do it. Just like visually. You act like a confident man, Mr. Purvis. You've got a few qualities, probably pretty good from a distance, especially when you got the fell out numbered, but up close toe to toe when somebody's about to die right here, right now. I'm used to that. I mean, that's the problem about making these biopics of famous criminals is they're not that interesting. They have one basic overarching desire and like not a whole lot else. So like, I think that's the problem with the romance too. He finds this woman in a nightclub, says, nope, you're mine, stalks her for a couple weeks. And then they're like insanely in love for some reason. And then the rest of the movie sort of hangs on you caring about that but because you really haven't seen him be a human being at all, it's like sort of hard to make that leap. Yeah. Well, I think this one's interesting. I think that, uh, I think I have a lot less respect for black mass because that movie did have the opportunity to show a rise and fall and a rise is when a criminal would articulate the hunger and the, the, right. the achiever instinct. This movie is just about a fall. And so like, yeah. I think it's another kind of like odd sort of, artsy choice that in the end doesn't really do it a lot of favors well it's the third act of this guy's life yeah i mean i feel like if this had been like a michael mann hbo miniseries yeah and this had been like the last two episodes this instead of luck maybe yeah instead of killing all those horses and getting sued (laughs) um there's something inherently like boring about the movie and i've been trying to like (laughs) it's sort of get my mind of i mean it's like a boring movie and I mean, I think it goes back to my thing, too, where, like, watching Johnny Depp do, like, a serious acting job is, like, not that interesting in this particular scenario. And some other actors are doing interesting things, but they're so cringeworthy. Right. Like, it's hard to, like, watch them, too. So it's like, I don't think it's a terribly, and I'll get to this in a second, but I don't think it's a terribly watchable movie. Right. Well, we And I think that, yeah. We can get to it now, because we're definitely there for time. Um. Sure, but I think you're right. It's it. This is absolutely a like a quintessential good bad movie for me because it is. This is a movie that like is either situated around or doesn't have much use for what we want out of like 
a right. cat mouse kind of relationship because Christian Bale is this like really unlikable kind of like w- sort of white collar goody two shoes who happens to shoot a rifle well like the it's the situation where uh dillinger is in the jail cell and they're kind of shit talking is almost like laughable because it's like this moment of like really overcompensating for the fact that these two guys spend no time together have no right have no, that's their only real scene together. yeah they have no chemistry together they don't have a genuine cat and mouse relationship because like they don't have any time to interact. And so like, it's just not a movie that's interested at all in giving us what I think, honestly, even if that makes us superficial, what we want out of these movies. And again, I think it comes to his film choice. Like, I think this is a good idea, but ultimately like, these are not very good scripts. Yeah. At least when they're bad, like black mass. Uh, And this one, which I'm going to have to give it a soft, bad, bad, um, wow. I think that, I mean, it's, there were moments where I enjoyed it. It wasn't the worst movie I've ever seen. I definitely didn't despise it the way I remembered, uh, from my childhood. Yeah. This has been a movie that you've spoken very ill of in the time I've right. known you. Yeah. But so having rewatched it, like I can forgive it a bit and I like didn't have a bad time watching it, but like, I definitely was like looking down at my phone a lot and wondering when it was going to be over <laughs> and you know, I think a lot of that comes to like I like a good boring movie every once in a while, but this one was uh, I don't know this one like even if you bought into it, it like wasn't that interesting. But do, do you have any more thoughts about why anyone would want to <laughs> like be in organized crime? It just doesn't seem that lucrative, really, when you think about it. <laughs> It doesn't seem that safe. It doesn't no. seem that rewarding. And really, like, what's the end game? It's a good question. I Have you seen The Drop? No. Is it good? I love that movie. Yeah, I think I saw it in theaters. I was really impressed by it. I think it'd be, nice. I think it'd be interesting to watch some organized crime movies that are like... I think that movie makes an interesting case because... It's so small and you understand sort of like it, it, you know, it kind of did what like Black Mass failed to do because this was a movie that like understood the fact that it was loyal to its neighborhood was important, but didn't really know what that meant um, in any sort of like more significant way. Um, I think the most organized crime movies to be made now are sort of like these interesting like portraits of individuals who like you're just someone who wound up in the neighborhood and like are you good for anything? Uh, like maybe you'll be good for this. Like that's kind of what the drop is. Um, and anyone can buy into that sort of lost sort of thing. Well, then I think that's too in judging all these movies and just in the, the category of gangster movie, I think setting plays such an important role in telling this. And I think Boston, especially in black mass, I was talking to a friend today about this the idea of Boston in the popular Hollywood imagination being like the last wild West. Totally. We're like Southie is this safe and it's also safe for Hollywood because it's a predominantly white yeah, area no where, you know, crime is still like an issue. I mean, even the departed, yeah. you know, stuff like that. And I think in Donnie Brasco, I personally think that New York is like a very strong character in that movie. Totally. But then, you know, Public Enemies, what makes that boring, too, is, yes, there's some scenes in Chicago, 
But for the most part, it's like they're on the same farm as like fucking season two when I turned off Walking Dead. Right. Well, I don't have anything I want to do in Indiana to put to, to use John Dillinger's words. Exactly. And neither does the audience watching this movie. <laughs> Across the ocean, another man, man, stuck again. Well, friendo. You know, just forget about it. <laughs> um, a tip of the hat to the 1990s for a series of movies in which Paul Giamatti had no role but to sit next to bulky technology. Yeah, here you go. <laughs> Uh, um, what's that Truman Show negotiator and now uh, Donnie Brasco there it is nice work um, yep. thanks so much everyone for uh, listening to this and thank you again to Murray Pomerantz for uh, for the time and for, for giving the thoughts we certainly appreciate stay that stay gold Murray um, to stick with us you can listen on iTunes or on SoundCloud you can follow us on Twitter or on Facebook, just find Be Real Guys, real spelled like a film reel with a double E. Uh, if you want to talk to us, it's berealguys at gmail.com. Noah? Uh, Chance? Thanks, uh, pal. Yeah, I'm, I'm building a birdhouse. And you, uh, <laughs> should I? Okay. You can't kill the demon without stabbing the good boy. Have a good night. Sun goes out, you'll be standing, you'll be standing by yourself. Ten minutes late, crossing the ocean, they have shackles on their legs.